Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. I'm currently on a book tour around the United States and hope to see you. Find the schedule of my events at warisalie.org. It is my privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, who has taught in the Native American Studies program at California State University Hayward and helped found the departments of Ethnic Studies and Women's Studies. Her 1977 book, The Great Sioux Nation, was the fundamental document at the first international conference on indigenous peoples of the Americas, held at the United Nations headquarters in Geneva. Dunbar Ortiz is the author or editor of seven other books, including Roots of Resistance, A History of Land Tenure in New Mexico, and including An Indigenous People's History of the United States. Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. I'm happy to be on your radio station. I'm very glad to have you on. I was very interested in a statement that you put out uh, last week that I saw from the uh, Institute for Public Accuracy. Uh, the New York Times had, had claimed in a recent article that President Obama, quote, has now been at war longer than any other president. And you objected to that claim. Is that not accurate? Well, it, it's very deceptive because, first of all, it's, he's, not the, he's not really the first. James Monroe was the, uh, you know, his entire two terms was uh, engulfed in the first uh, war, and it was a declared war by Congress. The first Seminole the War, Seminole right? In, mm-hmm. um, Seminole Nation in uh, Florida, which was actually uh, claimed by Spain at the time. And the war was taking place sort of illegally over, you know, a European international boundary. But then they just annexed Florida from Spain after that war. I'm, I'm speaking to you from Charlottesville, Virginia, about two miles from James Monroe's house, and I don't think oh. I don't think anybody has any idea who he was. But but wars against Native Americans went on for decades. Uh, I mean, James Monroe can't be the only U.S. president who was at war his entire tenure. Well, absolutely not. In fact, there were three wars against the Seminoles. The first one started in 1816, and then there were two others under, I think, altogether five different presidents up until 1858. So this was uh, actually a sort of, if you look at like the Gulf Wars, the Iraq War since 1990, if you count that, which I do because they had a no-fly zone all during the 90s and then invaded again in 2003, and that still goes on. That's kind of like the Seminole Wars. You know, there were some breaks uh, from all-out war, but a continuous from 1816 to 1858. And very few people even know about it. Uh, but actually, the United States was in the in the their Revolutionary War, the War of Independence. They had been as colonialists. Uh, fighting the Native nations, who were all agricultural nations east of the Mississippi. And they um, did counterinsurgency, because the only means that the Native people, like Vietnamese peasants or others, the only means they have to fight is is by guerrilla warfare and trying to protect their villages and their food and so forth. 
So counterinsurgency was actually invented in the colonial period uh, by the settlers themselves. The British Empire, they didn't have a bunch of redcoats running around, you know. They were pretty much autonomous on their own. And it was only when the British cut off their expansion after the 13 colonies were established, and that was in... um, 1753, after a huge war, seven years' war with France, they cut off any further expansion in North America. And uh, that's when, you know, when the settlers rebelled and declared independence, but all during that 10-year war of independence, they were mostly fighting Native nations because they were invading and occupying, you know, and... and, uh, occupying their territories uh, outside of the colonial boundaries. And that just continued without a beat. Um, The Seminole War wasn't the first full-scale war. The first full-scale war was against the Shawnee Nation in Ohio, and that was the leader Tecumseh that's identified with that. That was about an eight-year war, and they drove those, you know, the Shawnees out, of the Ohio Valley, and they joined with the Creek Muscogees in the south and resisting expansion into Georgia, to, uh, into, um, you know, beyond the first 13 colonies, the Tennessee, Kentucky. And then when they were, their villages were burned, uh, their food supplies, their fields burned and run out, they took refuge. So this Seminole uh, nation that developed from all of those resistors of the previous uh, 20 years, um, they they called themselves then, or they were called by the Spanish at first, Seminole, the uh, kind of corruption of a Spanish word, Seminole, like for for renegades, you know, rebels. And so they were a combination of, of different peoples, and they fought on. They never did sign a treaty. They never did lose uh, their territory. They still have it. Uh, Finally, the United States just stopped uh, fighting them and and left them there. It wasn't really territory. After the Civil War, it was sort of a moot thing because their main complaint, I think they probably would have given the Everglades to uh, the Seminole, Anyway, rather than all those wars, what it was really about was uh, it was an escape for enslaved Africans. They had a a maroon, uh, it was also a maroon uh, freedom place for enslaved Africans. There were thousands um, and thousands of uh, Africans. And in that first war, all they demanded of... uh, of, uh, that was that they, that they hand over all of the black people among themselves. And they said no, because by then they had intermarried. The Seminole Nation was this, you know, really this mixture of all kinds of different rebels, including some white sharecropper, um, <clears throat> you know, non-land-holding white people uh, who joined them. So it, that's a little-known thing, but that, that's what that war was about. It was about 
not allowing any escape from slavery as they then moved into Alabama and Mississippi and built the Cotton Kingdom, uh, the basis of U.S. capitalism, and uh, became really like concentration camp slavery. Uh, not that it was benign before, but it became uh, truly a, uh, a kind of concentration camp of work um, and, and, of course, breeding slaves uh, domestically in, in Virginia and marching them over there. It was the, it, it, Slavery got much worse. You think it can't get worse. Slavery is bad, but it got much worse. And that's really um, that limitation. It delayed it. You know, the Seminole Wars certainly uh, hobbled that development, but it went on. So then they continued, you know, after the Civil War, all during the Civil War, they moved out into the plains and into the the former Mexican territory. half of Mexico was taken in 1848 for the invasion of Mexico City. Uh, They had to uh, relinquish half their territory, the Northern Territory. But there were Native people there who had never been colonized, the Navajos and the Comanches and the the, uh, the Hopi Apache. And so those wars, you know, famously Geronimo and others, those wars, um, went on for 20 years, just the war against Geronimo, people went on for 20 years. So, you know, it's, if you leave out the first century of U.S. history completely, say that doesn't, you know, that isn't relevant to anything today, um, then you could say, I guess, that President Obama... <laughs> or whoever in the 20th century um, have carried on wars as if it's exceptional. And instead, it's, it's, it's the, the rule. I, don't, I can't find, I posted on Facebook once, asked others if they could find them. People came up with a few days, but I don't think there's a day in U.S. history from its founding until the present that the United States has not been aggressively um, at war with people of a foreign nation. Now you have to then realize that Native nations were foreign nations. Uh, They were actually indigenous nations, but they were um, foreign and recognized as such by the United States. So that's, you know, it's a warmongering nation. It goes to its very founding, its very DNA, and and we don't admit that, so we keep um, wondering, you know, why are... Why are we doing this? Why are we invading anywhere? And generations forget that even the recent past, like Vietnam, and think this is all something new. So it's, but it, it's consistent and it's constant. It's the whole basis of the formation of the U.S. military. Are those you know that hundred years war? It's really a hundred years war against the native people of North America. We're speaking with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. It seems like the tendency uh, among different groups and people in the U.S. public is to say that this U.S. warmongering really started in 2001 or 2003 or 1947 or 1898. 
but it sounds to me like you're suggesting the more accurate way to look at it is that it began before even the beginning of the United States and that the revolution was a, an imperial uh, war for expansion uh, and that the expansion has been continuing ever since. Is, is that how we should basically be seeing it? Yes, that's really the accurate history of the United States. And it's, you know, it's not that it's mis- it's not that it's secret information. Histor- you as historians know this. Uh, I was trained in, in history. I have a doctorate in history and um, from the 60s when my training went on. They knew it, but they put it it's all in, you know, in the documentation that they do in books. It's that they justify it. They don't put it in the context of U.S. being a colonialist and an imperialist state. It's only recently that they're admitting it's imperial, you know, talking about imperialism, as if that was this very brief period of time, an anomaly of invading the Philippines and then, you know, and Teddy Roosevelt, Cuba, and 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 then, you know, it wasn't wasn't even an empire anymore. But it was an empire from the beginning. You know, it was a split in the British Empire. And, of course, the United States Empire eventually took over. It was the ang- part of the Anglo Empire. And it's, it's such a, an obvious history, but the mythology of the United States, the narrative that, that we're told and that gets repeated and it's almost, uh, um, you know, criminal to um, to go beyond the, the parameters of that narrative very far. And even the left wing in this country from the very beginning has never really um, gone outside the boundaries of, of the narrative of an independent public, uh, republic being born, um, a very tiny place that then became very powerful because it was, you know, immigration, nation of immigrant narrative comes in, and that all these things uh, came about that kind of corrupted it, you know, that... Yeah. So it's, it's... Then there's this tendency to say, let's get back to the real roots of the United States, what it really intended to be, and find a, a model for making it better. But we have to understand that's impossible because it's not that, you know, there's never any anything good in the beginning. It's just that the United States <laughs> was founded as an empire and as a capitalist state, almost as a corporation. You know, it was uh, uh, the Constitution is, you know, the, is, is fundamentally the protection of private property. And the private property was land and African bodies. Those were the two commodities. Yeah. And it's not that, you know, it's uh, it's frustrating because it's not just being even-handed. On the contrary, multiculturalism itself, you know, the most recent iteration of uh, reforming U.S. history, has the same problem because that then is contribution how um, the contributions of African slaves to the wealth of this nation, that they built the, um, you know, built the White House, 
that Washington, D.C. made it greater. And there you have to literally make the Native people invisible, or it's a comical, you know, it's a comical narrative. And so that's what's done. It's basically just sort of plugging in a few instances, even in Howard Zinn. Uh, he has a kind of original sins that he acknowledges from the very beginning as, you know, slavery and Indian genocide, which was very controversial when he did it in 1980, even though many of us have been doing that. We didn't get published, but Native Americans always did know that. African Americans always did know that. But it it was very controversial, his book, in 1980. And so it's a great contribution, but he then has that what we have now, or what we had in 1980 when he published it, was um, a history of struggle to create something. And again, not recognizing the limitations of consciousness in uh, a settler, with a settler colonial um, framework, you know, forming the working class so that everyone is is bourgeois or, or, or seeks to be middle class. So we call working people middle class, not working class. And so we had the United States was, it is true, you know, that, that the, there should have been a revolution in the United States first. Marx actually wrote during the Civil War that that wouldn't happen because the working class was uh, stunted in the United States by the existence of slavery. And he made the same argument that he made about the British working class being stunted by its colonization of Ireland. But he didn't bring up settler colonialism either, you know, in the, as, which would have been the true analogy to uh, Ireland. Um, so that even Marxism in the United States is always, you know, excluded or not included or not considered uh, the land question, the land being taken, or even Africans as property. If more Africans as uh, as uh, labor, you know, Africans right. as as conscripted labor rather than African bodies being sold. I mean, the stock market in the 1840s was based on property and African bodies. And land, you know, commodities, the real estate that was taken and cut up and made into paper to buy and sell, uh, land as a commodity. That had never happened before in human history. Sure, there were big landowners and all. It was all common property, common law, but not cutting it up and making it into paper uh, commodities to be bought and sold and the bodies to be bought and sold. So to get credit in the Cotton Kingdom or in the North, the credit came, you could trade in this paper that represented, you know, these uh, the paper that represented um, human bodies, African bodies, or land. 
So we have to really digest that <laughs> and understand mm. what that means about our social psychology and the denial that happens is just devastating for any kind of uh, change, changing anything, because if we don't even know what it is, how can we change it? So it's, um, it's, really, it's really most frustrating on the left. Uh, people are, are really more than happy to jump in and say the U.S. is a terrible place and I'm not going to vote and I hate it and yes, there was genocide, yes, there was slavery. But that doesn't change anything. You know, it's, that's not really acknowledging your own role. You know, your, the fact that, you know, you're a part of this. You can't just... And that's been the tendency in the United States is for utopian movements or even labor unions, for them all to get atomized or say the Mormons or these religious groups, some of which were very interesting, like the Shakers, which were all women and, you know, kind of pre-feminist and common property. But they're all... Um, they're all uh, autonomous utopianists and not really changing the whole society. So it's really uh, become, I think, life or death, certainly as a planet, um, whether or not we get this and, and really start rethinking our whole strategies and analysis of uh, uh, how to halt it. Because it's uh, it's like a you know, a steamroller. It we haven't even slowed it down. You know, we've made all these social changes. I mean, this beast can absorb almost anything and just keep going. You know, because we're not getting to the root of the problem. And and I think. Uh Part of the root of the problem is what you have exposed here in war being present from the beginning. And I think it's it's a huge contradiction in that the U.S. military talks still to this day about moving out into Indian territory abroad and the what, the Apache helicopters and all the weapons named for the Native Americans. Uh, and yet the the current president is supposedly the the longest war president the Afghanistan war supposedly the longest war the US civil war supposedly the deadliest most murderous war and, and as if you know the native americans don't quite really count uh and so the military celebrates them as the first victims but uh erases them from history and from the statistics uh and even people on the left who want to abolish war talk about war getting really bad post-World War II with weapons of mass destruction, and it's the weaponry that makes war really bad, and it has the higher casualties and the higher tolls for civilians, when wars in the 19th century, 18th century, were all about slaughtering civilians. Um, yeah, oh God, half a million people in the Civil War, that's no small number. <laughs> and that, were, you know, that wasn't like World War One, where most people died of flu. Right, but it, even if it was three quarters of a million, it wasn't what was done to the Philippines. It wasn't what was done to Vietnam. It wasn't what right. was done to Iraq, and it wasn't what was done to the Native Americans. Yeah, but there were, um, you know, I think, um, yeah, it, you know, this dating, dating the United States. The other thing they leave out 
even though it's always there, it's always in textbooks. But it because there's no way to fit it in, it's just sort of ignored. Are the Barbary Wars under Jefferson? Yeah, who also lives two miles from here. Yeah, and the Barbary Wars were, you know, if you have this narrative, this is this scrappy little colony. They've just come out of ten years. Uh, these little colonies, they've come out of ten years of devastating war, you know, to be independent. And they have to, you know, then get busy and try to create a new nation, write the Constitution, they're all in these halls doing that. And suddenly they have warships in the Mediterranean shelling the Berber people uh, for free trade so that they don't have to pay a toll to go through their territorial waters. Right. Three of these wars. You know, and well, where the hell did they get the build those ships so fast? Well, of course, they already had ships. You know, I mean, they were shipping uh, Africans from Africa for two centuries. You know, they had ships. They had shipping companies. They had, they had everything. It's not like, you know, Portugal in Angola where they never built anything and then tore what they built down before they left. The British didn't do that. They they left. You know, they didn't... They came back and burned the capital in 1812. <laughs> yes. Uh, that didn't... And, you know, that, and, that didn't work. And Jefferson's Navy blew up one of those ships uh, in a suicide mission in the port in what we now call Libya. Um, so yeah. su- suicide bombing was not, uh, is not new to the Middle East. The, the U.S. was doing it uh, back then. We, we have just a couple of minutes left. How, how can we apply to the future this better understanding of the past? How can it help us with what the United States is now doing in Eastern Europe and Africa and Western Asia and Eastern Asia? Well, I think we have to tie these together because, for one thing, the rest of the world, these people who are being attacked, they don't know this history either. They don't know why the hell the United States keeps doing these things. And I think it's like the king's new clothes. You know, once the veil is pulled, you know, or the voice is out there, this is the way it is that... I'm not sure what will happen, but I think it's one of those moments in time that, that in which, you know, simply a shift, it would be a paradigm shift, because it's not just the U.S. as, you know, a settler state of Argentina or New Zealand or Australia. It's the most powerful country in human history, the most powerful military in human history the most deadly machine, you know, it's moving into space, it's destroying the Earth. It's, you know, and it can't stop itself because, like Richard Slotkin has written a whole book called Regeneration Through Violence, where he tells all of this, too, uh, you know, this, this, this story. But I think what he doesn't do and what uh, has to be done is, to name it colonialism, name it settler colonialism, and to understand instead of this thing of binary, you know, white and black, and then everyone partly of color can be included in black, to talk about 
settler and settler and the colonized. We're now looking at uh, much of the world as the colonized. Uh, we've been speaking with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Among her books is An Indigenous People's History of the United States. Roxanne, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. I'm traveling around the United States right now doing events with my new book, War is a Lie, second edition. I hope to see you find the schedule of events at warisalie.org. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time. <laughs>